Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our studio William Gravely, author of They Stole Him Out of Jail, Willie Earl, South Carolina's Last Lynching Victim. Dr. Gravely is Professor Emeritus of Religion at the University of Denver and is a graduate of Wofford College, Drew University, and Duke University, where he received his Ph.D. in 1969. He recorded the recollections of journalists, law enforcement officers, attorneys, clergy, and relatives of Willie Earl, who was lynched on February 17, 1947. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to have you here. So looking at this book, and this is a very new book by the University of South Carolina Press, um, what led you to working on this book? How did it all start? And I know it goes back many, many years. Well, I was a seven-and-a-half-year-old kid in Pickens when the abduction of Willie Earl occurred out of our jail. Hmm. Uh, I don't have any specific memories from that time though I've kind of reconstructed stuff that was going on around me, like the sheriff lived next door, the Methodist minister preached a courageous anti-lynching sermon mm-hmm. that I must have heard. Uh, but when I looked at the text of it in 1982 that he had in his files, uh, I didn't. nothing came up. I even did hypnosis to see if I could bring really? anything up, but, it, but that didn't happen. And that same minister I'm having a conversation with in my 40th year, and he makes a brief reference to it, but I still didn't quite pick up on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, in uh, the next couple of years, I made a note one summer to I could call him and ask him to tell me that story again. Mm-hmm. And I did that the following winter, and uh, he said I, he couldn't remember which year, so I went back and d- dug that up. and. And that's what got started. The project, in, in some ways, was just a simple uh, expression of my curiosity. Hmm. If I didn't hear it talked about who did and what were uh, I, things that were passed down, what did people who were there uh, in that period remember, including my father, I got to interview him. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in 1982, I did my first oral history interviews, and I was very lucky because I found his... Willie Earl's mother mm-hmm. in Greenville, among other people, including the prosecutor for the later trial. So it, it evolved, and at various times I thought, oh, I'm done with this, I've published a couple of things, and then something new would emerge. Somebody's papers would become available, mm. like over John Bolt Colbert's paper, one of the defense attorneys in the trial, over to modern political collections at USC uh, Library. Uh, so I'd go you know, finally have access to something I didn't uh, think was going to be available, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so this, I mean, this is a a lifetime worth of of work. If you started thinking about this, you know, when it happened. Yeah, half of my lifetime ago, yeah. That's just amazing. So uh, for our listeners, tell us a little bit how um, the book is organized. Is it um, just go chronologically? Well, well, yes. It, what happened is my first uh, draft that was way too long and had <laughs> everything I knew in it uh, was read by a critic by the, from the press, and I think I know who that was. Well, I'm not sure. Uh, and that person said, uh, "This 
lynching has the reputation of being the last officially recognized lynching in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have an introduction that uh, sketches the patterns uh, of the previous history and to see how this uh, connects back to those uh, uh, patterns. Mm -hmm. So I had to go back and uh, my last research was to go back and learn that history, which is what the introduction is. The book does move basically uh, in in a chronological direction because the lynching occurs in the middle of February 1947. Mm-hmm. There is an arrest at the end of that same week, and 31 uh, men are to be tried. And in May, there's a 10-day trial, and uh, all are acquitted. And that was the interesting thing to me. It's kind of ironic. The last lynching becomes one final repetition of the pattern. Mm-hmm. because there's no evidence with one possible exception that any trial for lynching in South Carolina ever uh, yielded convictions. There was one ambiguous case in Georgetown where five men uh, uh, killed one man, and the sheriff said, that's not a lynching. But some some of the people said, that's a lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, and those people, were two of them were convicted of manslaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't know how long they served or anything. Mm-hmm. But... That's the only one I could find in the record, depending on a lot of other people's research. Mm -hmm. And tell us about uh, Willie Earle himself. Who was he? Willie Earle was uh, 20, let's see, 25-year-old, I think, by 47. He was working in Greenville the previous three years in the sanitation department. His mother, who was a widow, lived in Liberty with other siblings. There were three other boys, two of whom at this point were still in the World War II, post-World War II military, mm-hmm. Navy, um, and they had three sisters. Um, he left school. He didn't like uh, farm work, but he also d- didn't like school that much, so he, he uh, was known kind of in, in liberty as he was growing up as someone who had skills to you know, fixed bicycles and, mm-hmm. and uh, mechanically inclined. Yeah, yeah, he he didn't drive a car. He he had epileptic uh, seizures sometimes, mm-hmm. so I don't think he ever was able to get a driver's license. But he bought a car with some of his side work that uh, for his two brothers to drive, mm-hmm. and they have differing versions of what that car was. So I'm not quite sure mm-hmm. what it was in the end. But um, anyway, that that was his his setting. His he went with the younger of his older brothers to uh, Virginia and worked in uh, a knee-high bottling plant mm. while his brother, uh, James Sidney, was uh, finding a way to eventually get accepted in the military. And then he came back from that. But otherwise, I don't know that he ever traveled much outside South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, he did have, in the last year of his life, an increasing problem of uh, getting intoxicated and doing minor kind of misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. Had three misdemeanor address and uh, arrest in Greenville. I can't account for what was motivating or bothering him in that mm-hmm. sense, but he didn't have any any history of 
violent behavior as he was charged or to be charged. He was arrested but never uh, interviewed or charged. The lynching occurred 18 hours after he was put into Pickens Jail, so mm-hmm. he was never really interrogated. Mm-hmm. But he was suspicious, sus- the suspect in the stabbing of a white cab driver that had apparently driven him over from Greenville that weekend. And uh, uh, he was taken before daybreak on Monday. So uh, the attack in Liberty had occurred on Saturday night. Mm -hmm. That man was still alive at the time Mm. of the the lynching named Thomas Watson Brown, but he died later the same morning. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have real stories from either in terms of what really went on Mm -hmm. between them. And you think back to that time period, 1947, and, you know, you're you're thinking about um, how in the world could these men actually get access to him to, you know, get him out of jail and, and lynch him? And, and, you know, you think about today's uh, kinds of uh, restrictions and, and prisons and jails and it's just amazing that, you know, did they force their way in or were they let in? Well, it, I don't have really good evidence that the jailer had prior knowledge of anything specific. I did find out that he and, and the, the Pickens had just hired a man as a, what they call a town watchman, mm-hmm. uh, Ben Looper, and he, and he, he told me that he and the jailer kind of wondered if, if there'd be any kind of a thing. But I think even if, if uh, that was the case, I think they were caught by surprise in the sense how quick it occurred, which mm-hmm. just wasn't you know, early and he'd been in, interrogated and virtually no account in the papers yet because this is a weekend, Saturday mm-hmm. night. It's not going to be in the Sunday paper. It'll be in the Monday paper, but mm-hmm. this is Sunday when they're de- they're deciding to do the lynching. But he was passive, and the FBI uh, came into the case. Uh, in those days, the fairly weak civil federal civil rights legislation but one thing that was there was that if there are jailers or law officers involved in a lynching, then the feds could come in, and that's what they did here. Oh. And they they would have had uh, reason to have charged uh, two Greenville deputies who saw the conspiracy over there occurring really outside the window of their office and was told by one intoxicated driver this is going to come off. And then later after the lynching, he comes by and says it happened. So their passivity was also part of that. Mm. But the FBI traded off uh, moving forward on that for the uh, decision by the state. And the prosecutor was Robert Ashmore, later congressman. The governor just had been inaugurated was Thurman, Strom Thurmond. So they took a strong law and order stance and said, we'll try this at the state level. Mm -hmm. And that was a victory in a sense for the FBI because often that wouldn't happen and they'd have to come in and they didn't have a good record of success. Mm -hmm. And how long did the case actually last? Well, the the sequence of that first week was this. Uh, FBI comes in, state constables come from Columbia, sent by Thurman. and then the deputies and the local police in Greenville. So there was over 50 law officers involved. And it mm. was a huge uh, strategic kind of uh, uh, investigation with some some of these guys didn't sleep for 36 hours mm. working on trying to get confessions and stuff. They got 26 statements. Mm. 
Uh, and so that by Friday night, lynching is for four-day break Monday morning, by Friday night, 31 men had been identified, and 30 of their pictures were in the Greenville News the next morning. That was wow. a very unusual thing. Mm. Um, and that gives you a clue to the thinking of the prosecutor. Uh, and Robert Ashmore uh, did not believe he had a good chance of getting 31 men convicted for the death of one man. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and so his alternative was exposure mm. and potential moral condemnation, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he, he did a good faith effort with it. But um, the fact that you had 26 confessions on the one hand looked like this is an easy case to to try, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, you got multiple versions of the same event, mm-hmm. so it's hard to come down to the to the one uh, one paragraph statement of what the real evidence is for a coroner's jury or for a trial trial mm-hmm. jury to have. So this, I mean, this trial was really a turning point, not only in South Carolina but really well, nationally. It, it had, yeah, it had the. Uh, huge Life magazine photo coverage that you would associate with the later period. Mm-hmm. Um, there were five New York publications that sent journalists. There were four uh, 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 services for the wire, wire services, mm-hmm. including one for the African-American press. Mm-hmm. Uh, three uh, African-American journalists. They had to sit in the segregated balcony of the courtroom, but mm-hmm. they were there uh, providing their angle. Uh, Time, Life, Newsweek, uh, Chicago Tribune, even a little paper up in Bristol, Tennessee, Virginia, <laughs> sent somebody down. So it was a huge media event for that period, even CBS Radio. Mm-hmm. Charles Daly, who had given the uh, uh, story, news story for Pearl Harbor for CBS Radio, therefore a familiar voice in the country, mm-hmm. came down and, and covered it. I mm-hmm. was never able to get uh, transcripts or, or recordings of that, but mm-hmm. he, he was there. Wow. Well, speaking of transcripts, um, one thing that I want to point out, and we do have a link to this on our podcast webpage, is the William Gravely Oral History Collection, uh, and that's at the University of South Carolina uh, Digital Library. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, what, what that entails? Well, as I said, I began this somewhat naively, saying, let's find some people who will talk with me. Mm-hmm. And I decided, for convenience sake, to record them. And I, actually, I told people at the time that this, this is your story, and I won't use it without your permission. But I didn't go through the process of getting formal permissions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, at a certain point, my university required me to run those uh, of those tapes through the Human Subject Review Board mm-hmm. go to the persons or to their legal authority if they had died or anything. And uh, so, so I had a little backlog of that to do when I first retired. Uh, but that's how it evolved. And then I gave them to the South Carolina and they digitized them mm-hmm. uh, so that they're available. They're uneven in the sense that because they're so informal, uh, some things that I learned later I would have talked about previously in a conversation. So there's, it's not a strict, uh, consistent pattern. I mean, in other words, I didn't have, like, a, for a social science 
uh, interview process, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. same questions to ask to every person. I didn't have that. I was trusting sure. people's storytelling ability mm-hmm. and wanted them to be at ease with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was able to listen to a few of those recordings, and it's amazing to take that step back in time and and just listen to those conversations. Are they all transcribed? or? Uh, unless they've done it, I didn't get them all transcribed. I had some student assistants at the university helping me with that at various mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. So some of them are, but unless they did the ones that I didn't do, mm-hmm. no, they aren't transcribed. It, and they're uneven. I, mean, I had one interview where the television is blaring in the background so much you can't out here. <laughs> well, I think one I listened to, I heard a dog barking in the background. So. <laughs> well, John Popham, the New York Times uh, journalist who covered it, I had a whole second side of interview of the tape that was that didn't didn't record. So uh-huh. it was very disappointing with that. And yeah. John H. McRae, who was a African American civil rights activist here in Columbia, editor of the Lighthouse and informer newspaper, the weekly paper for Black South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, there's background noise behind it so much that I mean I spent a couple of hundred dollars trying to get that one fixed but mm-hmm. it never did kind of fall into place but yeah what what any of those uh interviews stand out in your brain particularly as as pretty enlightening well getting to talk to earl's uh, mother was curious i'm sitting down looking at the life magazine photos with uh, aj wittenberg and mark talbot who had been active in uh, in naacp and in a little known uh, movement, to me at least, I knew nothing about the South Carolina Progressive Democrat Party mm-hmm. in the 40s. This is not Henry Wallace Progressive 1948. This is in-state black uh, uh, civil rights oriented movement, and they challenged the all-white delegations to the Democratic conventions of 44 and 48. Mm. So we I'm sitting down with these two guys, and they said, one of them said, I think I saw Ms. Earl at church uh, a couple of Sundays ago or whatever. I mean, calls. He called and found where she was. We, we went over there, and I let these two guys go in and talk with her first because mm-hmm. I never met her. Um, and because there was a white cab driver, cousin of my father's generation, not in Greenville but in Liberty, mm-hmm. who had a relationship to the conspiracy, and uh, I didn't know she would trust me with my last sure. name as soon as I was introduced, but they go in and said, your son's death did not uh, occur in vain in a sense it motivated us to be uh, uh, more attentive to human rights and so forth. And then she trusted me. Mm. And uh, she gave me the title of the book, They Stole Him Out of Jail, is a phrase from her interview. Okay, because I was going to ask, how did you come about that title? Because sometimes there's an interesting story behind titles of books. So, wow, that came from his mother. Gosh. Um, well, one of the other questions I wanted to ask is, how does this story tend to relate to the current state of affairs in not only Southern criminal justice, but just nationally? Well, the criminal justice system has got problems at all levels about uh, you know, whether you have private prisons or public, uh, state, federal uh, prison system. Uh, and there's still a disproportionate number of African-Americans imprisoned. And a book called The New Jim Crow deals with that. I, I'm, I'm not competent to go into 
the specific details of mm-hmm. all that. Mm-hmm. I'm just aware, as most people are who keep up with the news of, sure. of that. And um, you know, I do. I am troubled about uh, the way in which public racism has emerged in some in some con- context here the last few years. And I didn't expect that that would happen as mm-hmm. an old man. I'm about to be 80 in August. Um, and I think we have to engage that seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was ta- uh, I have was taught in uh, theological school to read Mein Kampf and to read an essay by John Paul Sartre on anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. and both uh, of those experiences confirmed to me that racism not just some simple prejudice or dislike, it's it's a uh, a, a fundamentally grounded opposition to the other and mm. not just the way the other might behave or be, or show uh, certain kinds of traits but because they are mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. a it's an ontological it's a human being kind of objection so that its logic is always genocide mm. whether it's carried out or not in, in or in in more uh, slow slow forms apartheid and so forth um and uh, Dylan Roof drew upon that kind of orientation. In his view, he had to do what he do because he had to do what he did because he believed African Americans were defective. They were doing mm-hmm. things that were destructive uh, in his worldview. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tragic that that kind of thing um, has to still be confronted in the way that we need to do it from mm-hmm. civic and moral and spiritual resources. Certainly, and it's this kind of documentation that's so important to you know developing the understanding and and um, not only changing people's worldviews, but also you know adding to the the narrative and the um, the archive of yeah. of yes. the, our human existence. Um, what I want to do now is ask you a uh, kind of a library-related question, since this is Library Voices SC, and we're in a library here at the State Library. But do you have any uh, specific library stories? Anything uh, about your research? Or well, I'm in the process of uh, sending uh, complimentary copies to the many libraries that let me work and help me along the way. So Libraries love that, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> well, it's a kind of a professional courtesy to do it, but um, the, the best library story, I guess, is to tell you that uh, I had no idea that Rebecca West, who wrote the most important essay about this at the time, she came down for the New Yorker magazine only for the last three days. She missed the whole first week of the trial because she had been ill. Mm. Um, and uh, I, was, I actually corresponded with her right before she died to see if she had anything further to add about it. Mm-hmm. But there's material of, of hers at, in the Yale and Tulsa libraries, mm. and I went to both of those. And then there's further material in the New Yorker records at the New York Public Library. Mm. So in uh, dealing with permissions and stuff like that, I had London lawyers to deal with for all three of those contexts, and it took some time. But in Tulsa, uh, one of her biographers had run across a notebook that she made in Greenville that nobody else had ever mentioned, and the people at Tulsa didn't know they had it in a sense. Wow. What happened is I was reading the biography, and I realized these are quotations he's citing that I've never seen before, and I've been there. Uh, so I went back to Tulsa to see where that thing was, and they, they told me it was a useless trip. turned out that she had, it had been class, cataloged 
on the basis of what her early notes were in the notebook, which had to do with the earlier case. Hmm. And then on page 21, it says Greenville, and for the rest of the notebook, she's got material that allowed me in Chapter 8 to interact her notes with her essay. So the Chapter 8 is called Through the Eyes of Rebecca West, dealing with the last three days of the trial. So that was quite a find. That is, and I'll tell you, that kind of research is amazing when you are able to come across something like that that's such a gem. Yeah, yeah. Never expected it, but I'm sure glad I didn't take their advice and not come to back that's to That's right, that's right. The importance of good cataloging, I guess. <laughs> okay, well, um, tell us a little bit about what, um, what you have coming up in the future. I know you're here in South Carolina doing a lot of promotion for the book, but do you have any other projects that you're working on as well? Well, I've got many projects that I, I never completed, <laughs> and this I was not in competition with anybody to try to argue that uh, Ripley's, believe it or not, would want to say this is the longest research project in history, <laughs> going back to 1981. <laughs> <laughs> but um, of late, what I've thought, uh, there's, two, there's two things going here. This is the book, and this is the story, mm-hmm. but the process, uh, beginning with my roots and pickings, I've thought about writing at least kind of a 40 or 50 page pamphlet mm-hmm. about how I came to write about a lynching out of my hometown mm-hmm. and uh, the, the different kind of emotional tugs that uh, related to that. I mean, I'm related to the jailer on three sides of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had an unusual experience of being uh, tutored in African-American history over time. I was in graduate school at, at uh, Duke I went to Atlanta from the Methodist Board of Education with a pickup truck and two other uh, guys moving materials from the previous library of the Black uh, Methodist Seminary, mm-hmm. Gammon Seminary in Atlanta, to the new campus near Atlanta University, mm-hmm. beca- the co- called the Interdenominational Theological Center. Mm-hmm. And as part of that process, uh, I found all this material about uh, African-American church history and so forth. I mean, my program at Duke was really white, Protestant, and for that sense, male-oriented. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about Catholicism when I went to my job in Denver. I didn't know anything about Jewish history, uh, and I was supposed to talk about American religious history. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't know anything about uh, black church history. Mm-hmm. But I, I've created an archive down at uh, ITC before I left that summer with all that material. I mean. The, the uh, in scholarly circles at that time it said uh, African Americans didn't keep church records. Mm-hmm. That's just absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was an AME Church magazine in the 1840s, mm-hmm. and I found W. E. B. Du Bois's copy, who was on the Atlanta wow. University faculty, mm-hmm. uh, in that collection. Mm-hmm. So, I, in that sense, I've been honored to learn a lot about African American history, but particularly religious history. And I I think I've gone to more than 30 archives and libraries in a period from the 70s through the early 90s before I really got refocused on this book project, mm-hmm. uh, just identifying and cataloging manuscript minutes from Baptist associations in Kentucky 
you know, there would be African churches in, before the Civil War. They'd be called African churches as part of a Baptist association in Kentucky or Virginia or Georgia, mm-hmm. much less the independent church movement in the North. Sure. So it was, it, I mean, it's a very rich history, and I, I've had some fellowships to finish that, but I hadn't finished it. I'm embarrassed <laughs> that's the case. Well, it's certainly a lot of information. And again, this book is uh, They Stole Him Out of Jail, Willie Earl, South Carolina's Last Lynching Victim. And we've been talking with Dr. William B. Gravely. So thank you so much for being with us well, thank today. Thank you for inviting me, Chris. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is librarievoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. Until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening. 